we are talking about worship. I've uh, been doing that for a few weeks now, trying to really just get a grasp on what it is. We use the word a lot. We don't necessarily always know what we mean by it, or we don't necessarily always mean the same thing by it as other people. And so we're trying to uh, just focus in and, and um, work out a, a definition of sorts and just considering um, particularly worship in a corporate sense, um, what it is we do at Ephesus Church and why we do those things. And so we're, that's what this class is about. And um, right now we're in a section where we're considering worship as it's revealed in the Bible itself. We're not so much looking to form necessarily systems of thought, big categories, um, not, not even how, as the Bible talks about it as a whole, but how is it progressively, organically revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation. And there is absolutely no way that we could note every reference or you know, con- you know conceptual reference uh, in the Bible to worship. And so we're trying to hit some of the, the highlights. And first, uh, we talked about worship and revelation, that worship is, our worship of, of God is founded upon the basis of His revelation to us, that God has to initiate the relationship. God creates Adam and comes to him with a covenantal relationship to establish um, and we see that all throughout the patriarchs, the people of Israel, ultimately us personally. We know that. We didn't worship before Jesus came to us uh, through His Gospel and caused us to be born again. We didn't worship God. And so worship is founded upon revelation, both in establishing a relationship and revealing to us the ways in which He desires to be worshipped. He reveals to us that which is acceptable in worship. And secondly, we said that worship is closely connected with redemption. Not only does God come to us, but now He comes to us as sinners. We are sinners in a fallen world, and we need to be redeemed from our state of sinfulness, our bondage to sin, death, and decay. We are redeemed out of that, ransomed, for His glory, brought to um, serve Him. And we looked at the people of Israel and Exodus and how they're brought to the mountain to be consecrated, to serve the Lord. Um, additionally, we saw that in that, the tabernacle was set up, was established, and that was the center of the life of Israel where God's presence It was the meeting point between heaven and earth, the tabernacle where God dwelled among His people. Uh, And with that, the tabernacle and uh, eventually the temple, we see the sacrificial system. Um, Not really eventually, but in its establishment, we have the sacrificial system, which uh, is uh, both a... um, a means of the Israelites cleansing themselves from their sins to come before God. But ultimately, it's a reminder that there is, in fact, nothing that they can do to be acceptable before God. And so they must look to another. Because uh, as the book of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls 
and goats uh, cannot atone for sin. We must have Jesus to do that for us. Um, and then we, we said that uh, all of this is pointing forward to a future hope for God's people. Um, so any questions that you guys have been thinking about uh, over the last week or anything I just said there that we want to address before we dive in? Sweet. Okay. Um, so today what we're going to try to do is consider a few terms in particular. So not necessarily ideas, you know, because before we talked about concepts that, the, that worship touches on in the Old Testament. And as a bridge between the old and the new, we, uh, we want to look at three different ide- uh, words, really, um, that come up a lot in the scriptures, both in the, um, in the Hebrew and the Greek, and we're not really going to get into all of that, but um, these, these words um, are used, and so we just want to consider the words themselves, what do they convey when we talk about worship? So first, uh, worship in the scripture has to do with honor. Um, one group of words used in the Old Testament um, typically conveys a literal like bodily posture, the idea of being you know prostrate um, before the Lord and indicates a direction of physical movement, this word. And so like Genesis 24, Uh, 26 and 27 um, says she said to him I am the daughter of Bethuel the son of Melchah whom she bore to Nahor she added we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord And so there's this idea of, of bowing, stooping, um, and it indicates typically a spontaneous response to um, certain events or circumstances. The words in this group sometimes simply refer to a simple greeting, but usually are an expression of inferior status and, a, and subservience to another. And the idea of bending, bowing before the Lord expresses humility and devotion as a pattern of life. But that's not to say that worship then requires a physical posture. Um, simply that often one group of words that um, is used... Tended, tends to convey that kind of bowing. We see that a lot. And that's just one example. Uh, Exodus 4.31 is another you could look at um, for that. Um, secondly, there's this idea of service. So there's honor. There's a, a you know, m- making oneself low before the Lord. Secondly, there's the concept, the idea of service. We have a few more passages to look at here. Um, Israel was delivered from Egypt in order to serve the Lord. We saw that last week, I believe, in Exodus 19.4. That they were brought to the mountain and 
Moses was to remind them that they were brought there to serve the Lord. Uh, in Deuteronomy 10, 12, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. And down in verse 20, he says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. Here, service is seen as a a comprehensive term for Israel's relationship with God. There are cultic references to service, um, meaning particularly these uh, issues relating to corporate, formal, official worship. There are those, but often there's an emphasis with service on a total lifestyle of allegiance to God. We look in Joshua 22, verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to keep His commandments, and to cling to Him, and to serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And so there's these these repeated admonitions in the Old Testament, various books of service to God as a, an entire life-encompassing ideal. There's a total lifestyle of allegiance to God in our service with all of our hearts, all of our souls, our beings. Therefore, service of God is not possible for those who live a lifestyle of rejection of God and His commandments. So those who uh, refuse to obey the Lord and to live uh, in light of what He has commanded His people, um, it is impossible that they could say with any amount of sincerity that they are serving the Lord. Um, Joel 1 9, Exodus 28 43 also speak of um, special responsibilities in terms of service that belong to the priest uh, that they had in regards to serving the Lord. And God is a great king. And so he requires faithfulness and obedience from all those who belong to him. Israel served God in an expression of complete loyalty devotion and allegiance to Him. As we said, the language of service implies devotion to God as an entire pattern of life. And so, um, many words we see uh, in the Old Testament, they, um, they touch on honoring God, serving God, and lastly, respecting God. Fear or respect, while typically in English we don't consider them to be synonymous. We always uh, have to sort of explain what we mean when we talk about fearing the Lord, right? We say respect the Lord. We know what that means. If we say fear the Lord, we perhaps um, get confused. Uh, But biblically, the words are very 
are used very synonymously. Israel was to fear and respect God, keeping His commandments. Um, in Ecclesiastes 12, at the end, he says, you know, the end of the matter all has been heard. Um, fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the, the whole duty of man. And so, uh, we are to fear God. We are to keep His commandments. We are to obey His voice. First Samuel 12, 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. We are to walk in His ways. Deuteronomy 8, 6. And we are to turn away from evil. Proverbs 3, 7. And here again, fearing the Lord, respecting the Lord, these are life all of life encompassing ideals. This is a lifestyle of Israel. Uh, Jonah 1 9, uh, he does say that I am the one who fears the Lord. Right? They're like, hey, who are you? What God do you worship? And he says, well, I fear the Lord. I'm an Israelite. And so uh, it's, a, it's an identifier of who he is as a person. Um, it's not just one aspect of what he does, but it encompasses his whole life. Um, at least ideally, Jonah kind of, not necessarily uh, does he fear the Lord, but that's how he identified himself, I think, indicating that, that would have been a common way of doing that. And so, um, honor uh, and homage, adoration, uh, service, respect, all of these things. Uh, in the Old Testament can be seen, they can be done in silence, with physical posture, with loud praise. Um, see this in Psalms a lot. can be done at the time of the offering or other sacrifices. Ultimately, though, it is the posture of the heart that matters in our approach to God. Right? To love the Lord with all of our hearts. Worship is service to a divine king who permits his subjects to serve him on the terms at his initiation. And uh, we fear God in obedience to all the covenant demands of God. And so there's really so much more that could be said, but those are uh, just a, a few texts and um, uh, a, kind of a way that I just wanted to, to round out the discussion on uh, the Old Testament and its uh, use of different terms for, for worship. And so any, any questions on that? I, I, I don't feel like that's... Uh, it was just so much to cover and so many things we didn't look at. And, um, but any, any thoughts or questions about that? You guys want to throw, throw out there? Joke never gets old to me. Um, okay, so the New Testament then. So the Old Testament, we see all these different connections that are made with worship and these, these other aspects, these, these words that are used conveying um, all sorts of uh, issues. But ultimately, with I think the, everything that's being described, we have to conclude that uh, it is a matter of the heart that is most 
important. A heart that is right before God, um, coming to Him in the way that He has prescribed. And so in the New Testament, I think the big question that we want to ask is what does the New Testament do with those concepts and issues in the Old? Because if the Old is God's first revelation to us, the New is His final revelation to us, we have to ask what is the... Does anything change with God's expectation of His people in worship from the Old to the New? And again... This should be an entire class, not entire Sunday school class that we do on, on this issue, but we're going to try to do it in like two weeks. So <coughs> that'll be fun. First, the temple. That was as the center of Israelite life in the Old Testament. What does the New Testament do with the temple? Jesus and the temple. And so we want to. Uh, these first couple of points we're going to consider, what do the Gospels say uh, about worship? Uh, how does this, these kind of theological biographies of Jesus um, showing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and his uh, arrival in the world, what do they say about worship? And first we want to talk about the temple. The temple was the place of God's manifest presence in all the earth. It was a meeting place between heaven and earth. We'll say that over and over again because it's really important. But So one thing that I would hope we walk away with uh, from this class is the notion of the temple and, um, and Jesus as the, the new temple. And so let's get there. It was a place where the transcendent Lord of all was pleased to manifest His glory in the midst of His people Israel. It was a reference point for the life of the nations. It was supposed to enable Israel to live out its destiny before the nations as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So when the temple is destroyed... In 586-587, when the Babylonians uh, come and sack Jerusalem, when that happens, there must be some future hope for God's people. This was... It's very difficult for us, I think, to wrap our minds around how significant that would be. Um if somebody came and just destroyed every you know, brick that we had on this campus, it would not in any way, shape, or form compare to the significance of what happened, uh, especially in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed later, but 586 as well. Um, and so that's something that we have to to think that that was the place where God met with His people. That was where He revealed Himself. He manifested His presence there. And so when it's destroyed, they would have been at a loss. And so, the question then, what is the hope? If 
If, if God is a God of hope, the temple is destroyed, what's the hope for the people of God? And how does this relate to the temple and His presence among them? And then, how does the New Testament answer this question? This is a, a good uh, quote uh, that I think summarizes everything we're about to say. The center of the new religious community in the New Testament was not an institution located in buildings or at a place. Not even in Jerusalem, nor was it a hierarchy of ruling organization, nor yet a new ideal or way of life. The center of the new religious community was simply and entirely the person, Jesus Christ. We learn from the New Testament, or what we learn, is essentially this. Jesus Christ is the goal of history. He is the final and definitive, definitive revelation of, uh, or manifestations of God's presence with His people. He is the final and definitive manifestation of God's presence with His people. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. The house of Israel falls in the Old Testament and is restored in David's Son, Jesus Christ. As the Son of David, He is the promised ruler who will rescue and restore Israel, delivering His people from their sins. Matthew goes to great lengths to demonstrate Jesus as Messiah. A Messiah is just an alliteration of a Hebrew word that means anointed one. He's the anointed one of God. He is the true Israel. Matthew 2.15 He is the promised King. 3.17 And He manifests God's presence Matthew 8.29 as Messiah. In Matthew 12.6 Jesus says something very striking. He says uh, he's being challenged on the issue of the Sabbath. And uh, he responds by, um, he says, um, Have you not read what David did? This is in verse 3 when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, uh, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so in this uh, conversation about the Sabbath, um, which is very, was very closely connected in the life of Israel with the temple. Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Obviously, he's referring to himself. In effect, Jesus says, the, he represents God's royal presence and authority more fully than the temple did. The tabernacle, the temple, that was, they were constructed, 
built in the Old Testament representing God's authority, His presence. It was a place uh, for the nations to turn, to be healed and received by God. And now Jesus says, as good as that was, it was, it was only a shadow pointing forward to the One who would come and be the true temple. At the end of Matthew, Jesus commissions His disciples and brings a climax to the God with us theme. Right? We see that Jesus, um, Mary's told that you know, He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so at the end of Matthew, in 28, where he commissions his disciples, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus as the authoritative representation of God on earth gives a command to His disciples and by virtue of His resurrection, the exalted Christ has become the One through whom all of God's authority is mediated to the nations. And so it is now no longer a central place, a locale, physical location on planet earth to which the nations were to go, it is now the person Jesus Christ who sends out His disciples to bring others into fellowship with Him. I've said this a couple of times. In the New Testament now, in the New Covenant, we are now no longer required to move to Israel. We don't have to move to Judaism. We move to Christ. And so, the cultural life of a Christian is going to be different in place to place. There are no longer all of these cultural expectations that are laid upon the people of God. In Matthew's Gospel, also, Jesus is seen as the One to whom every knee should bow. He is God with us. He is now the resurrected Son of God. All authority is His, and so we, His people are to go and make disciples of others. Additionally, in John's Gospel, in uh, reference to the temple, John goes to great length to reveal the way in which Jesus fulfills Old Testament institutions. Uh, for a long time, I always thought that John was a very, thought it was a, a, a very Greek book. I thought that because you hear Logos and always oh, Logos interacting with the Greek world and thought, wisdom, and all of this. Um, and there may be some of that, but it is a very Hebrew book. And it's a very Jewish book. Um, 
all throughout, John is screaming at his audience, Jesus has fulfilled all of these institutions of the Jews and um, Jesus' I am statements, all of these are references to different aspects of religious life. And something that I was just blown away by a couple of years ago when I was reading through the prologue of John's Gospel. John 1, 1 through 18. Right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. We know that passage. And then we skip on down to verse 14 always. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, John tells us here, but, so we're familiar with that, but I, I had missed something for so long, and, and I want to bring that to our attention now. The divine presence is no longer bound to the temple, John says, but the Word who was with God in the beginning and who in fact was God has become flesh and taken up temporary residence or He has tabernacled among us. Um, in John 1.14, um, that's the place that he, has, um, he was, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word that's used there, um, dwelt, is uh, a word that in the Old Testament, in the, the Septuagint, is often used for erecting a tabernacle. I would encourage you, if you want, if you have the time this week, read Exodus 33, 7 through 34, 9. And then read John 1, 1 through 18. And see if there are not some striking similarities. So that's Exodus 33, 7 through 34, 9. And then read John 1, 1 through 18. In effect, um, what John is doing there is in Exodus 33, um, the laws, laws, some laws have been established, and um, the the tent of, of meeting is is discussed in 33 and 34 is where Moses asks to see the Lord's glory and. Um, and God proclaims His name to him. And John, I, I would argue, is taking that passage in his prologue um, to the Gospel and is interpreting it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Um, in, 30, in 33, those last few verses, I think the word like, tent which is a noun related to the verb that's used for in John 1 of tabernacling. Uh, it's used like 11 times in like four verses or something. And so John is picking up this idea of the tabernacle, the, uh, the, the meeting place of God and, and Jesus as the fulfillment of that. I actually want to look, I want to look at that. We... Maybe run out of time doing this, but that's okay. So, in 33, um, 
So 7 through 11 particularly, um, see the idea of the word tent is used a lot. And then I want to look down just particularly at the, the, the proclamation of the Lord's name. The Lord passed before him, verse 6 of 34, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward earth and worshipped and said, If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. And if... um, we look at, particularly in the proclamation of the name, he says, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's a very similar idea. It's not identical words. And so, um, it's perhaps more of a hunch of mine that this is what John's doing. But in John 1, uh, 16, he says, from his fullness we have received grace upon Grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the right hand, at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the revelation of God, the presence of God with man. And John records in Nathaniel's confession of Jesus in chapter 1 of his gospel. Um, he records Nathaniel's confession and Jesus' response, which is striking. In uh, verse 49, John 1, 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. So Jesus sees him, at a, you know, he sees him under the fig tree, but he wasn't there. And he tells him, and he's like, Whoa, if you're the Son of God, that's crazy. And Jesus says, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world is that? It's a reference to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. And um, when... Uh, author makes a remarkable comment on this verse. He says, despite the complexity of Jesus' words here, it is an allusion to the dream of Jacob in Genesis 28.12. And it is clear and suggests that Jesus as the Son of Man is the new Bethel, which is the place, that's what uh, Jacob names the place where he has this dream in Genesis 28. Anybody know what Bethel means? House of God. It is the house of God, the gate of heaven. Genesis 28, 17. Jesus now says, I am the new point of contact between heaven and earth. The temple, however, was not only that. It was not only the meeting place of heaven and earth, but it was a place for sacrifice, purification for sin. And thus... The temple finds its fulfillment not only in Jesus' incarnation as the one who tabernacles among us, but it finds its fulfillment also in His sacrifice. 
because these sacrifices were performed at the temple, so Jesus comes and makes his sacrifice for sins. All right. We would be crazy people to have a class on worship and not talk about John 4, the woman at the well. And so since we have zero minutes left, um, we will pick up there next week. Um, We'll conclude with John... um, Woman of the well, talk about that, and because that's Jesus says that uh, God desires true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, and that's one of the most definitive statements in the entire Bible that we have on worship. And so we'll begin there, and we'll try to move on to a couple other themes, and um, finish. It may take us more than the, the two weeks that we said, but I know that was a lot, and we didn't really pause for questions uh, very much, but anybody have any thoughts or comments, questions before we close out? The main idea here being that uh, Jesus is the temple. It fulfills the temple um, and is now, he is our access to God. Um, And so um, I hope that this is helpful for you. Uh, I know it is for me. So uh, if there are no questions, I'll pray and then we can be dismissed. Father, thanks for your word. And uh, Lord, it is an overwhelming task to, to attempt um, to teach it faithfully, um, It is quite apparent to me uh, doing this that there is a, a depth to the word that um, we have not even come close to plumbing. So I do ask that you would help us, help me. We want to focus on the right things. We want to draw our attention to that which is going to be useful for us in, in growing in holiness and grace and having greater fellowship with God and worship and greater fellowship with one another. Thank you for your word and for these men who you have used to uh, reveal yourself especially to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ who is the new temple who is the, the new meeting place for God and His people. He is the contact point between heaven and earth. He is the, the place, as it were, where sacrifice has been made to bring a sinful people before God, washed clean of their sins. Be with us now as we come to worship. Meet with us. Draw near to us. Give us joy. Satisfy us with Yourself. And get glory for Yourself in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.